activate interlock. Dinotherms connected. Welcome back to another episode of Retcon, a podcast of assorted geekery. I'm Rick Marshall, and today we're talking Voltron. The iconic Defender of the Universe first debuted in the U.S. in 1984, and Voltron Defender of the Universe went on to become one of the top-rated animated series of the era. The show offered fans a regular dose of cosmic adventures, featuring a team of heroes who pilot giant mechanical lions that fly through space and, when the challenge proves too great, unite to form a massive sword-wielding robot. Now, Voltron is back in action thanks to DreamWorks Animation and Netflix, which recently debuted a new 11-episode reboot of the original series. Voltron Legendary Defender features an impressive voice cast that includes The Walking Dead actor Steven Yeun, Arrow actress Bex Taylor-Klaus, and Flight of the Concord's Reese Darby, as well as a modern, digitally animated spin on the famous robot and his adventures. I spoke to Voltron showrunners Joaquin Dos Santos and Lauren Montgomery about the new series and to get a bit more insight into the show's journey back to the small screen. Where are we? You five were brought here for a reason. Together, you will form Voltron, the greatest weapon ever known, protector of the innocent, and our only hope to save the universe. Jeez, no pressure. Defenders of the universe, huh? It's got a nice ring to it. Joaquim and Lauren, thank you for joining us today to talk Voltron. So was Voltron on your radar uh, when you were younger? Absolutely. Uh, for me, I was just ever so slightly too young to really remember watching it. I know I watched it, and I have like some kind of slight fleeting memories of seeing it on TV, but I wasn't old enough to really retain that memory. Later in life, I would kind of see you know, images of this robot and like this princess, and I'd be like, oh my gosh, it would kind of bring those memories back. Like, I remember watching that show. And so, yeah, it was it was something that I enjoyed when I was a kid and then re-familiarized myself a lot throughout my life as I got older. I would kind of just rediscover it over and over again. And, yeah, I mean, I was right in the strike zone. Um, I'm a little bit older than, than Lauren, so I was right in that toy-buying strike zone. And I, I specifically remember sort of, I don't know, pulling pulling the wool over one of my uh, uncle's eyes. He was like an uncle close friend of the family. Uh, and and, you know, he's trying to make good with his nephew. And, and I, I said, hey, why don't we go get some, go get a toy? And he thought he was going to get me like a, you know, $13 price point Transformers or something. And he got, he ended up getting me a $100 price point diecast Voltron toy. Uh, and I just remember walking up to the, walking up to the counter knowing that I had him sort of dead to rights. Like, hey, if you want my friendship, you're getting me this toy. A, uh, a series like this, uh, as you well know, it carries a lot of nostalgic baggage uh, when you go about updating it or rebo- rebooting it in this case. Did you feel that sort of pressure that, that comes with you know, older fans of the show, sort of putting it on a pedestal? I mean, there is. There's, you know, you, you, you look back on, I mean, nostalgia really does sort of play tricks with your mind. Uh, you know, as you look back on some of the things that you have these nostalgic feelings for, they, they aren't always exactly what your brain, your, your child brain, you know, made them, made them out to be, but that nostalgia is really powerful, so it, it carries a lot of weight. I don't know that we felt pressure from outside fans as we were, you know, fans of it, so it was, it was more really just living up to trying to make the show that we wanted to see and that we remember watching, but wasn't necessarily the show we watched. So, I mean, I'd say more than anything, you know, we were just trusting our own gut, and the pressure really came 
from sort of an internal source more than an external source. Well, you both have a lot of experience uh, working on animated series, uh, including some pretty high-profile uh, shows, you know, like Avatar, Less Airbender, and Young Justice, and the, the DC Comics uh, animated features. A lot of those projects involved you putting kind of a new spin on, on popular, well-established characters. So where do you start when, when you take on something like this in deciding what to keep, what to change, so forth? Us being fans of the original Voltron, we didn't want to remove anything that seemed kind of blasphemous to us, anything that would just make it not recognizable as the Voltron we knew and loved. We knew we had to keep that essence, like the core things that you definitely remember, like the, the feeling of these five pilots in these lions working together and forming this giant colorful robot Voltron. But the funny thing is when you really kind of go around and ask people what they remember about it, there's not a whole lot of people that really remember what the actual like minutia story points were beyond that. They know there was a bad guy and they know there was Voltron and Voltron fought the big robies that the bad guy sent. Beyond that, it's, you know, kind of just fades away. So luckily for us, we didn't have to worry too much about sticking to that sort of stuff. We didn't have a fully fleshed out story that had come before us that we had to try and trump. It had kind of just been a show that was a bit of a product of its time. It was cut together from the original Go Lion series and then Die Ruger. And so they were limited by whatever footage they had, and they had to kind of just build a story around that. We had none of those limitations. So as long as we knew we kept those core, like, essence parts of, of what Voltron was, we could kind of just have a field day and really build out the story from there and kind of fill in a lot of the gaps that the original left, like, you know, what is Voltron's origin? Where does this thing come from? Yeah, and, and I think, you know, the, the key was to really just lock into those nostalgic pillars and make sure that we paid homage to them in some way and stayed true to them. So, so what we've been saying early on is that, you know, visually everything had to pass the squint test. So there might not be a, a one-to-one correlation, you know, the, the characters aren't wearing the exact same suits, but when you look at them, you instantly recognize them as the characters you grew up with. The voice cast in the series is really top-notch. It's got some interesting, dare I say, inspired choices for some of the roles, uh, like Reese Darby as Koran. How does the casting come together on, on a show like this? Do you have actors in mind from the start? Um, did you have just sort of some happy surprises along the way? Yeah, it's a little bit of both, for sure. I think Koran was kind of one of those magical moments where our writers had really created this character that was so kind of fun and, and quirky, and... And, I think and different, I, I should yeah. say different from the original. Very you know, Koran was, was kind of a stiff, stoic, stoic. Sort of, yeah, he was like a sort of a mentor character. Very to, serious to guy, and, uh, and he's a very different guy in our, our show, but he brings a lot of fun and, and heart to it. Uh, and our head writer, Tim Hedrick, brought up Reese's name. He was actually the guy that he had in mind for the role, and it just so happened that Reese was interested in working with DreamWorks in some capacity. So they already kind of had his name on a list of like people to use in some sort of property. And so it, it lined up perfectly and we got to use Reese and he brings just so much fun to that character. A lot of the other ones were, whether it was our casting, casting Director, department, yeah. kind of looking at having people in mind or just going out to auditions and fi- just magically finding that right voice that fit in perfectly. And then a little bit of, uh, like, with the case of Stephen Yin, Joaquin having worked with him on Legend of Korra, uh, we knew what he could do. We knew how talented he was. So we were able to kind of 
find a role for him and use his amazing voice acting abilities. Yeah, I mean, the, the casting kind of ran the course of, you know, all, all types of situations led to, to people landing the roles on the show. But there is, you know, there's that phenomenon of, you know, you, you hear it all the time, like, oh, they just have it, or they, they, you know, they were sort of meant for this part. And I would always hear that before we got into animation or entertainment. And it's true, you know, th there, were, there were certain roles that we would hear the first time out. And we'd absolutely, you know, go and listen to multiple auditions after that just to make sure that we were crossing all our T's and dotting all our I's, but it was really that, that first time hearing, you know, somebody like Bex mm -hmm. as, as Pidge. It was, she was the choice from the outset. We, we just knew it. We felt it. And, and Tyler was much the same. As soon as we heard Tyler, you know, there, there, you know, I won't lie, there were some other people that were, like, potentially in the running, but Tyler was really it. He, he brought so much to the lines that were already on paper, and he'd make them his own. It was awesome to hear, and he did that in the audition, you know. Mm -hmm. he, he, he made the lines his own. It was, it was really great to hear. Yeah, the actors really infuse these characters with their own personalities, which just kind of brings, like, a kind of a genuine feel to them, which which is really helpful for us. Yeah. I'm sure. And, and with uh, with traditional animated series, uh, the uh, rollout has been a bit segmented uh, with, you know, new episodes every week, some sort of schedule like that. With Netflix, uh, you're rolling out the whole season just all at once. Does that affect the way you approach the series? Uh, yeah, it does. We actually didn't feel quite as compelled to kind of shove everything out the door immediately. Uh, we were able to pace ourselves a little bit more throughout the season, knowing that people weren't going to have to wait 11, 10 weeks yeah. to see, you know, what, what's going to happen in the end. We could kind of allow these characters to evolve and mature and take a little more time with it because you might sit through, like, a slower episode half hour if you know there's another one coming up versus if you're sitting through two weeks of, like, slow episodes and you're like, I'm out, I'm out right. of this episode. Right. I don't want to watch the show anymore. But yeah, it completely changes the whole dynamic of how we tell our stories, knowing that we don't have to, A, make something that isn't serialized. We, we don't have to kind of recap everything at the beginning. If it's just going to run sequentially, you can allow it to play out in a very serialized way. Ultimately, it's just better for us as storytellers because those are the stories that we like to tell. Yeah, and, you know, I mean, traditionally, network television, the sort of big request is to make sure that, that things can play out of order when they're aired, you know, out of order, that all the stories still make sense. And, and the big push from the beginning, especially from Netflix's side, was to ensure that this thing was serialized. So it, it really was right up our alley. It's, it's what we've been trying to do our entire careers and, and been getting away with on some level, but always trying to sneak in serialization where we could. If all goes well with the first season, do you have some uh, some thoughts, some plans uh, beyond this first eleven episodes? Do you have a rough outline of where you'd like to see the series go? Oh man, we got plans. We got we got plans for days. Yeah, for sure. Uh, days and days. I think you know, with something like this, you absolutely you know you don't you don't plan just to do one season. So yeah, we've got storylines that that continue, and and you know, if if you make it through this first thirteen, you'll see that there's a pretty big cliffhanger there at the end. Yeah, we got more more stuff up our sleeve for sure. Well, here's hoping we uh, we get to that point and get to see all that cool stuff you have uh, waiting for us. Joaquin and Lauren, thank you so much for joining us today yeah, to we... talk Voltron. No problem. Thanks for having us. Yeah, our pleasure. Thanks so much. That was Voltron Legendary Defender showrunners Joaquin Dos Santos and Lauren Montgomery discussing the popular animated hero's return in the new series available now on Netflix. 
This has been Recon, a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. Our producers are Jessica Blaustein Marshall, Patrick Garrett, and Dave Hopper. I'm Rick Marshall. Thanks for listening.